The Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Keith Salas. Introduction The Boy Scouts of Woodcraft Camp, to which the present volume is in the nature of a sequel, was written to demonstrate what may be accomplished by the application of Boy Scout principles where boys are thrown in constant contact with one another, as in a large school or camp, and at the same time to stimulate in boy readers a desire to learn for themselves the great lessons of manliness and self-reliance, of true courage and of purity and clear thinking and living which Mother Nature is ever ready to teach those who seek her in her own great temples. In The Boy Scouts on Swift River, I have endeavored to show the direct application of the lessons learned in Woodcraft Camp, and for this reason have chosen four of Dr. Merriam's boys, three with whom you are already well acquainted if you have read the first book, and one who is a tenderfoot, to face the test of self-dependence in a canoe cruise on unfamiliar waters. I am well aware that certain old hunters and perhaps some naturalists may accuse me of stretching the truth in regard to the boldness of the bull moose in inflicting his society upon the young cruisers. For this reason I want to say here that the incident is literally true in the main points, as I myself was one of the victims of his undesired attentions, and prized today as among the choicest of all my photographs those made of His Royal Highness on that memorable occasion. One of the great charms of the wilderness is the continual encounter with the unexpected. The true scout is prepared to meet such situations and to do the right thing instinctively, but to be thus prepared he must have learned the value and blessing of self-dependence. The boy who has never been forced to stand squarely on his own feet, who has never met an emergency for himself, alone and with the full knowledge that he has none to whom to turn, will seldom become a leader either in boyhood or manhood. Self-dependence is nature's inflexible law. Upon this and this alone rests the very life of every wild creature from the largest to the least. Man is no exception once he has entered those domains where nature rules supreme. For this reason, I believe that in no other way may moral and physical stamina be so surely and quickly developed in a boy as in such a trip through the wilderness or semi-wilderness as herein described. And for you, boy reader, I can wish no greater joy than the thrill of a run through foam-crested water, the sense of triumph in the successful meeting of an emergency, the mingled odor of frying bacon and pungent wood smoke, and the deep peace that comes with stretching out on a bed of fragrant balsam at the end of a hard day's paddle, lulled to dreamless sleep by the soft murmur of the night wind among the treetops. Other adventures in the woods are described in The Boy Scouts on Lost Trail and in The Boy Scouts in a Trapper's Camp. The Author Chapter 1 First Aid it was noon on the last Saturday in June. The great city of New York sweltered in a wave of intense heat, the more unbearable because of its unseasonableness. The huge office buildings poured their thousands of weary men and women into the already crowded streets. Each entrance to the subway was a human maelstrom, surging and eddying and seeming to suck below all who were caught in its current. 
The vertical rays of the sun, beating down between the skyscrapers, was reflected in glaring heat waves which engulfed the hurrying throngs until they gasped for breath. Impatient drivers of delivery vans, eager to make their last deliveries, chauffeurs of private motor cars urged on by homeward-bound businessmen, and motormen of service cars packed to suffocation with human freight, hurled anathemas under their breath at the traffic police whose upraised hands halted them at every crossing, forcing them to creep uptown at a snail's pace. The clang of gongs and the shrill cries of the newsboys added to the confusion. Down Broadway, stemming the human tide, came a patrol of Boy Scouts. They wore the regulation uniform, broad-brimmed hats, and each carried a stout staff. It was a blue tortoise patrol, Eight sturdy lads marching two and two behind their leader, a clean-cut, well-built boy of fifteen upon whose hat appeared the oxidized silver of the patrol leader's first-class scout badge. In their faces was none of the strain and weariness of the crowd through which they made their way. Instead, they were alight with anticipation, for they were on their way to the ferry for an afternoon hike on the Jersey Meadows. Just ahead of them, the great flat-iron building, dividing two of the city's chief thoroughfares, swam in a haze of heat and dust. As they approached it, there was a sudden rush of people from the sidewalk toward the middle of the street, where they crowded and jammed and almost in a second had completely blocked traffic. A burly policeman forced his way through and stooped over something, then rising asked if there was a doctor present. There was none, and the policeman turned to drive back the crowd while a fellow officer, who had come up, forced his way to the nearest box to send a call for an ambulance. "'What's the matter, officer?' a voice called. "'Don't know, a fit or faint or something of the kind,' growled the policeman, vainly trying to drive the crowd back. "'Back there! Stand back! Give us room!' he roared. Then, wriggling through as only boys can wriggle, nine khaki-clad figures suddenly sprang to his aid. They were the members of the Blue Tortoise Patrol. While the officer tried to drive the crowd back, the patrol leader knelt beside the limp figure. It was that of an old man, shabbily dressed. He was unconscious, and his face was red and skin hot and dry. Occasionally, he gave a little gasping sigh. "'It's sunstroke!' exclaimed the scout leader, and at once began to loosen a man's clothing. Calling one of his patrol to his aid, he bade the latter shade the victim's face with his hat, while he himself bathed face, neck, and chest with cool water from his canteen. Under this treatment, the sufferer was beginning to show signs of returning consciousness as the clang of an ambulance gong scattered the crowd. The young white-coated surgeon made a hasty examination. As the patient was lifted into the ambulance, he turned to the young scout leader and gravely gave him the scout's salute. "'Sunstroke. You did just the right thing. I congratulate you,' he said tersely. He swung up on the rear step of the ambulance. The gong clattered, and the crowd melted away as quickly as it had gathered. The leader of the Blue Tortoise Patrol slung his canteen over his shoulder and turned to his followers. "'All in!' he commanded. And then there was a wild yell of, Oh, you won't! A big touring car had just drawn up to the opposite sidewalk, and from the front seat a boy of about the leader's own age was leaning and wildly swinging his hat. In the tonneau sat a gray-haired man whose keen eyes twinkled with pleasure. Hal Harrison, where and under the sun did you come from? 
shouted the patrol leader, quite forgetting his patrol and rushing across with left hand extended for the scout grip. Got home yesterday. Tried to get you on the phone this morning, but couldn't connect. Say, we saw you giving that poor chap first aid just now. It was great. Bully for the blue tortoise patrol. Where are you fellows going? Why can't I go along too? Hal paused for breath. Put your brakes on, son, and pull down to low gear, laughed Mr. Harrison, leaning forward and extending a hand to the patrol leader. Upton, how are you? I see you haven't forgotten the practical things that Dr. Miriam taught you at Woodcraft last summer. Suppose you climb in here with us and we'll move on. I see the cop over yonder is beginning to eye us a bit uneasily. This suggestion recalled Upton the fact that he had deserted his patrol. I'm afraid I can't accept, he replied regretfully. You see, I'm taking my patrol out for a hike, and would hardly do to desert them. I guess it's a pleasure which has suddenly become a duty, he added. Nonsense, you didn't suppose we would tempt you to desert, did you? laughed Mr. Harrison. Hi, scouts! Tumble in here, every one of you. I guess we can stow you away somewhere, he shouted to the waiting patrol. The blue tortoise needed only a nod from their leader to swarm aboard the big car, and a few minutes later they were humming up Fifth Avenue, to their own great delight and, to judge by the twinkle in his eyes, the equal delight of Mr. Harrison. So you are going out to the Jersey Meadows for a hike this hot afternoon, said he. This doesn't look like it, replied the leader, whom Hal had called Walt, a momentary frown of perplexity furrowing his brow. Mr. Harrison laughed again, a hearty, boyish laugh. There was an odd note in it that would have been a revelation to his business associates on Wall Street, could they have heard it, for among them he was known as the Iron Man, devoid of sentiment and, some said, of feeling. But this was because they knew only the man of business, the shrewd, far-seeing financier, the master of millions who could make or break the fortunes of others at a word, whose very name was a power in the financial centers of the world. "'I've got a better plan than that,' said he. "'Now that I've kidnapped you, what do you say to an afternoon at the seashore, say, Coney Island? We'll just run up to my home for a few minutes and get my other car and a bite to eat. Then we'll go show the White City what a good time really is. The members of the Blue Tortoise Patrol are my guests.' "'Doesn't that beat the Jersey Meadows? "'What do you say, Mr. Leader?' Upton needed but a glance at the eager faces of his followers in order to make up his mind. Besides, this would give him an opportunity for a long talk with Hal, whom he had not seen since the Christmas vacation when Harrison had returned for two brief weeks from the private school where he was preparing for college. "'I guess it's a case of unconditional surrender, sir,' he replied smilingly. Walter Upton and Hal Harrison were brothers, scouts, and fast friends, although the former was from a home of very modest character, while the latter was the sole heir to millions, their acquaintance and friendship dated from the previous summer, when both had been members of Dr. Miriam's famous Woodcraft Camp in the heart of the North Woods, a camp conducted on Boy Scout principles and whose purpose was to make big men out of little boys. Harrison was a splendid example of what the right environment and scout ideals strictly adhered to by those around him can do in the development of character. Petted, humored in every whim, toadied too by all about him because of his father's wealth, 
He had entered the famous camp school an arrogant, selfish, purse-proud boy, a cad in every sense of the word. There he had found no caste was recognized. He was simply Hal Harrison. He was judged not by what he possessed, but by what he was. He had realized for the first time in all his life the meaning of the word democracy. He had been placed squarely on his own feet and had found that it was wholly up to himself whether he would stand or fall. His experience had been a bitter one, but the inherent good qualities within him had triumphed in the end, and from being virtually an outcast among his fellows he had won for himself a place high in their regard. More than this, he had become self-reliant, manly, eager to do his share in work and play. The battle with the old, selfish, domineering character had been a long, fierce struggle, and the boy had been forced to drink to the dregs of the cup of humiliation. Through it all, one of his staunchest allies had been Walter Upton. The result had been the ripening of a strong friendship. Mr. Harrison had been so delighted with the change for the better in Hal that he had become an enthusiastic supporter of the Boy Scout movement and of the simple, natural life of the woods for the development of clear, clean thinking and sturdy self-reliance. It had been his suggestion that Hal and Walter should choose two more from among their comrades in Woodcraft Camp, and this year wind up their summer outing with a two-weeks cruise in canoes, he to assume all the expense. All winter, while Hal was away at school, this purpose cruise had been the subject of long, enthusiastic letters between the two boys, and it was a question which had most eagerly looked forward to Hal's homecoming when they could complete their plans. I thought that you were not due until next week, Walter shouted in Hal's ear as they sped up Fifth Avenue. I wasn't, replied Hal with a grin, but I found that I was exempted from all the exams next week, and so I decided to cut commencement, and here I am. Say, the last time you wrote, you didn't seem to feel quite sure about this summer. It's all right, isn't it? Walter grinned back at the face so close to his own and on which the smile had given way to a little cloud of anxiety. Yep, he replied, it's all right, and I'll be ready to start for old Woodcraft a week from today. There was a while that it looked as if Dad might not be able to stand the expense this year. It seemed to me that I just couldn't give it up, and it was up to me to get busy. You remember Dr. Miriam was forever hammering it into us that the only real pride a scout should feel is the pride of independence. I got to thinking of that one day, and somehow it seemed to me that I should enjoy this summer a whole lot more if I helped pay my own way. So I hustled for a job out of school hours and got it, errand and general chore boy by a drugstore just around the corner from my home. And I've saved up enough to help out quite a bit. Dad says now that things have turned out better than he had feared they would, and that he can afford to send me to camp more easily than he could a year ago. But I'm going to pay my own way so far as I can, just the same. Bully for you, Hal exclaimed admiringly. Do you know I've never earned a penny in my whole life? I, I sometimes wonder what that kind of independence feels like. It feels mighty good, I can tell you that was Walter's prompt response as the car drew up before one of the most costly residences on the famous Riverside Drive, overlooking the Hudson River. As the car stopped, a sudden hush fell upon the blue tortoise patrol. They had realized, of course, that the owner of such a splendid great car must be a man of wealth, 
but in five minutes Mr. Harrison had put them at ease. Now the great mansion before which they had stopped filled them with sudden awe, for they knew then that their host must be a very rich man indeed, and a sudden shyness possessed them. Mr. Harrison noticed it at once, and turning to Walter, he drew his face down in mock severity and said, Mr. Leader, behold the enchanted castle. You will please marshal your troop and follow me. Walter smiled. Fall in by twos. Left, right, left. He ordered, and with Hal by his side, he led the patrol behind Mr. Harrison up to the imposing entrance where a dignified-looking butler for once so far forgot himself as to permit a fleeting look of astonishment to sweep across his usually impassive face as he opened the great door. Assuring himself that the boys had already lunched, Mr. Harrison left them to their own devices in the great library while he and Hal got a bite to eat. It must have been a frugal lunch, for in a few minutes he had rejoined them, saying that it was too hot to eat. Hal joined them shortly in full scout uniform, and the patrol were quick to notice that he wore the badge of the first-class scout. "'Well, Mr. Leader, you'll have to resign your command to me for the rest of the day,' said Mr. Harrison. "'Scouts, fall in for an attack on the White City,' he commanded, leading the way out into the hall, where once more the obsequious butler held wide the door." Outside two cars were waiting instead of the one in which they had come, and the patrol was divided between them, so that everyone had a comfortable seat. With a shriek of the horns they were off, the happiest patrol of Boy Scouts in all New York. End of chapter 1